Man, Opal Tanaka is great. She really is. You know, of all the women Iceman awkwardly dates, she is easily my favorite. Does she stick around or end up sidelined? Sidelined. But honestly, that's probably for the best. The relationship was getting pretty strained. Because Iceman was secretly gay? Because Opal's grandfather was a crime lord who wanted her to take over the family empire. Yeah, I guess I could see that being an issue. Of cyborg samurai. What?! Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 142 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to more 2017, although for us it's actually New Year's Eve. We are actually double recording on New Year's Eve because our December recording schedule is truly bizarre. Yeah, I keep on thinking that this is going to be the first episode of the New Year, but it's not. It's going to be the second, right? Yeah, because we rang in the new year with Cable showing up and shooting a whole lot of people. Or we will have rung in the new year with Cable showing up. Man, time travel's confusing, especially when you're not actually doing it. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, so hopefully 2017 so far is great and uh, better than 2016. We don't or, know. Or at least we're better braced for it than we were in 2016. I feel like a lot of the trouble with 2016 was that it kind of flew in and smacked us in the backs out of nowhere. Uh, yeah, pretty much that. God, this is the worst segue ever. I am so sorry. Apologies to everyone who's just tuning in now. If this is your first episode, I don't even know what to tell you, man. I mean, I wouldn't regardless because <laughs> X-Men's very complicated. Well, okay. So anyway, speaking of big things of 2016, uh, there's something that we should at least briefly talk to you about. God, I feel like we're sitting them down like our kids. We kind of are. We, so first of all, we want you to know that we both love you very much. Yes, we do. And and you will always be our listeners. <laughs> but as some of you have probably already seen, um, we've talked about it a little bit on Twitter and Tumblr. Miles and I are in the process of splitting up. We have been for some time. We are, yeah. But we do want to stress, like, right away, the podcast is not going anywhere, and Jay and Miles, as a couple of awesome friends, are not going anywhere. Truth. Best bros for life. Yeah, we've been hanging out and talking about X-Men for 20 years, and that's a pretty big part of who we are. So, um, this kind of, obviously kind of sucks, but um, it's also a good and necessary and very much a mutual thing, and we are committed to staying, you know, best friends, creative collaborators. Again, we'll figure out a custody arrangement for you guys. I think Miles is going to get you on the weekends, and I'm going to get you on weekdays. I'm totally going to bribe them with awesome presents when they stay with me. Man, you're going to be the cool host. I'm going to have to be the mean host to enforce his bedtime. Was there ever any doubt? No, I mean, I guess that was kind of inevitable. But anyway, yeah, we're still figuring things out logistically. But since the next few months are going to be kind of more complicated than usual, I mean, for us in our personal lives, we wanted to let you know in case that impacts the show. I mean, we're hoping it won't mess with things too much, but it's hard to say right now. So in the short term... Things are largely going to look the same. In the slightly longer term, this spring, I'm going to be moving to New York to bring the fight to that fool Richards at long last. I'm going to be staying in Portland for the foreseeable future to maintain the West Coast base of our bi-coastal criminal empire. Uh, again, we're still working out the logistics of continuing the podcast and the video reviews remotely. But as far as we know now, as far as we have planned, both are going to be continuing and ideally they'll be continuing largely uninterrupted. So, guys, thank you seriously for all of your patience and understanding. It's a strange time, I'll be totally honest. But honestly, doing the show, being able to talk about X-Men for a whole bunch of people who are enthusiastic about X-Men, it makes all of this easier. It makes 
all of this more awesome. Plus, you'll get twice as many presents next Christmas. <laughs> yep. Everything Miles said. And thank you also in advance for respecting our privacy during a challenging personal time. That's something that we really appreciate. Anyway, um, enough about us. Let us look in on some suckers with even more tumultuous personal lives, that being X Factor. So I gotta say, you know, as you mentioned, it is really reassuring to be doing this podcast through all of this. Not only is it a constant and a tumultuous world for both of us, but I feel like no matter how weird and strained things are for us or no matter how, like, fucked up our lives get, we are so much more stable and together than the X-Men. We talk about X-Men as a soap opera, and right now we're sort of in a period of massive change in all of the books, but that is a reassuring constant, and no X-Book is as sudsy and angst-ridden as X-Factor. And man, there is a lot of that going on in this era. Now, this is an era that I'm less familiar with. I mean, I'd read it before, way back in the day, but this was not part of the collection that I read over and over and over. So coming back to this, it was kind of a surprise to just realize how much it's all about, like, dating and breakups and murderous wings that want to kill everyone and Archangel getting his guts ripped out like three times in as many issues. Oh, yeah. You see sort of the soap opera locust kind of moving and rotating through the X-Books. And now it's hardline, hardcore back in X-Factor. The New Mutants are busy learning to be a paramilitary group and uh, dealing with large scale kind of not so much personal change as Cable showing up and becoming their new mentor. And Excalibur is just getting back from the cross-time caper. And they've got sort of ongoing low to medium key interpersonal drama through that. But mostly they've just been sort of scrambling to keep up with the plot, which means that once again, the soap opera train is back in X-Factor with an intensity I don't think we've seen since the early days of the series. I would totally agree. But speaking of earlier days of the series, let's give ourselves a previously on X-Factor. Our current team remains the original five X-Men, Cyclops, Marvel Girl, Beast, Iceman, and Archangel. Plus, they are, of course, hanging out with their enormous sentient spaceship, Ship, and Cyclops' kid, who will someday grow up into the gun-toting mercenary Cable. Adjunct to the team and often at their side is intrepid reporter and Beast's current love interest, Trish Dilby. Now, X-Factor was most recently in space, doing the whole Judgment War thing, but now they are done with space, and they're coming back. Alas, that means they are no longer drawn by Paul Smith. Yeah, well, what can you do? But we get Terry Shoemaker. I really like Terry Shoemaker. Yeah, I mean, Terry Shoemaker isn't one of those artists that people really remember as like a super standout, distinctive person, like, say, I don't know, Sienkiewicz is always my go-to example for that. But at the same time, Shoemaker's visual storytelling is great. His likenesses are really solid. Like, the book just reads very, very smoothly. Yeah, he's incredibly good. I mean, honestly, he's a great fit for this kind of story. I'm thinking specifically of, like, the Scott and Jean stuff that we're going to see in the snowball fight scene and all of that. And God, and everything, everything with Bobby and Opal. Yeah, I got to say, Bobby Drake looks the most distinctive under Terry Shoemaker that I think he ever has. Like, this is kind of my definitive Bobby. In my head, when I think of Iceman, it's Shoemaker's work. Yeah, when I try to describe Bobby outside of ice form, like, I go blank and just think, like, generic wasp, possibly a J. Crew catalog. I'm just imagining an actual wasp, Aww. except with, you know, Iceman's weird, like, neck gorge thing he's been wearing an Extraordinary X-Men lately. It's very confusing. Yeah, that's an iffy costume. <laughs> it truly is. But he's in his X-Factor gear now, which is somewhat better. And yeah, yeah, Shoemaker draws him really fantastically. Let me think, is there anything else we should cover? Angel is these days Archangel. He's blue. He's got wings that are semi-sentient and evil. Yeah, he was transformed from Angel to Archangel by Apocalypse after he tried to kill himself for various Cameron Hodge-related reasons back in the day. Miles, are, are you feeling all right? Um, mostly? Because you just bypassed a chance to say one of your favorite words. Oh, you mean talking about the poison-tipped flechettes that he can fling from his razor-sharp wings? 
Ah, that's better. I love saying flechette. I don't know why. It's just a really satisfying word. No, it is. Flechette. It's sort of soothing, really. Better or worse than credenza, because credenza is really good. I don't know, but I mean, what I would like most of all is a credenza full of flechettes. A spackled credenza full of flechettes. A spackled credenza full of flechettes. The Miles Stokes story. Perfect. Well, anyway... Other than that, we mentioned that Nathan Christopher Charles Summers, the baby who will be Cable, has been hanging out with the team, and X-Factor keeps him around all the time, which, I don't know, I'm torn on this, because on the one hand, superhero teams get attacked constantly, so that's not safe, but superhero bases also get attacked constantly, so leaving him at home wouldn't be safe either. Yeah, and this is the kid who got kidnapped like four times in the first month of his life. Fortunately, he has already manifested his mutant power to make a protective psionic bubble around himself, so at least there's that. Well, and Ship is capable of producing all sorts of fancy baby containers. Baby containers. Like a credenza, for instance. A credenza full of flechettes and babies. That seems hazardous. Would the flechettes be a choking hazard? They're pretty small. No, there are like two compartments. Like in one half, it's flechettes, and the other half, it's babies. It's sort of like Ah. the old Nintendo cereal, where half the box was Mario stuff and half the box was Zelda. Or the old nerd cereal, where it was different colors the same way. What was the one that actually, like, killed people? Uh, I think that was the Nintendo one. I think that stuff was downright poison. So if you ever find a box of cereal from the 1980s, that's a second reason to not eat it. (laughs) So we are looking at X-Factor 51 to 53 and 55 today, because 54 is part of the next storyline, and those four issues kind of fit together. We're going to be jumping around all over the place while we're doing that, because again, we are Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, not Jay and Miles Recap the X-Men, so we've tried to put specific storylines together following characters and the groups that they show up in. But it all starts in one place, which is right outside of Earth's atmosphere, because X-Factor is flying back to Earth in ship. And they're distracted from re-entry by Nathan Christopher apparently saying his first word, which Gene interprets as ball, even though it's just written out as Bob, B-A. You know, I would have expected, like, stab his eyes. Or possibly gun. At the same time, though, you were mentioning earlier that B-A could start a number of different words. Yeah, yeah, no, there's bazooka, which would be very much in theme. Okay, yeah, so, uh, bacchanalia? I'm in. Uh, ballistics, again, you know, sticking with Cable's known motifs. Badass. I think it might be that one. Balaclava bagpipes balderdash huh i mean ball is probably a reasonable guess but honestly gene shoot for the sky you know what it should do it should have that little star after ba and then the caption should be translated from the ascani or just translated from the baby from the baby okay from the baby yes so yeah that's a nice happy way to start this story now ship also has a surprise for x-factor as they finally land on earth albeit one of a very different nature which is literally landing now ship has been hovering above new york and or floating in in, i think hudson bay over some body of water but now it in fact actually lands it goes vertical and plants itself down in midtown manhattan as a skyscraper complete with an enormous x logo as one of the characters says X for X-Factor. Swell. If they didn't know who to sue before, they do now. But apparently Archangel, back when he was Warren Worthington III, rich playboy, purchased the land and set everything up so that basically it could have any sort of zoning at all, even like aircraft taking off and stuff. We don't know very much about this, so we asked a friend who lives in New York on the premise that that would probably be enough expertise And it was confirmed that this was, in fact, probably feasible and would have been more feasible around 1990, but that if it was next to a church, there might have been other zoning issues. For example, some say over whether they could get, say, bureau liquor licenses. Exactly. But what they have to worry about right now are not liquor licenses, but a bunch of helicopters showing up because both the news, who follow X Factor everywhere they go in this era, and the police are very interested to see what the hell is going on. To be fair, they just literally landed a skyscraper in midtown Manhattan. 
I mean, this is the Marvel Universe. I feel like that's just Tuesday. That's an excellent point. Now, the cops are easily you know, deferred with the evidence that, yes, Warren bought it. Yes, the zoning is there. Yes, they have all of the requisite landing a skyscraper permits. But the news choppers, unfortunately, are so hungry for a story that they actually crash into one another, which is a problem. X-Factor goes to save them because that's what they do. But our buddy Warren Worthington, the blue and bladed archangel, is conflicted. An animal, angry, deadly, dwells in this blue skin, growing ever more vicious and difficult to control as my anger at this human folly increases. But I can't let innocence die. I love how gothy Warren is in this era. I mean, like, I genuinely actually do. I've always said that for me, Archangel was just 100% more compelling than Angel. And as much as this is sort of, I don't know, it seems like an almost adolescently simplistic conflict, it works for me. It works to have the beast within, you know, having his heroism, his idealism conflict with the fact that his wings just want to sort of murder. Someone needs to smack this man upside the head with a rolled up newspaper and hand him a teddy bear and like a copy of My Neighbor Totoro. <laughs> that might help. My Neighbor Totoro always helps. Now, the rest of X-Factor is a little less gothy about it, a little more presentable, and they, you know, help everyone get down from their wrecked helicopters and whatnot to the ground on one of Bobby's ice slides. Except for one cop, a woman named Charlotte Jones. She's not so sure about the ice slide. She's not great with heights, so Archangel flies her down. Yeah, and there's a nice little eep from her as he does, and they're totally going to date later, guys. And actually, I want to jump in here and talk about the love interests introduced in this arc, because we have a few characters who show up. We have Charlotte Jones, who will end up as a love interest for Archangel, and we're going to have Opal Tanaka, who will end up as a love interest for Iceman. Neither of these relationships is actually going to go anywhere long term, and it's a shame because they're both fucking awesome. Well, and honestly, what I also really appreciate is that in a book with five white main characters, the two love interests that are introduced here, the two new additions to the sort of central cast, neither of them are white. Charlotte Jones is black and Opal is, uh, I think, Japanese. Yeah. So that's a cool thing. Well done, Louise Simonson. Yeah, Charlotte is also specifically a cop and a single mom. That's cool as well. And she's fantastic. We're going to see a little more of her this arc, but mostly she's going to turn up later. On the ground, reporters still won't leave X-Factor alone. Apparently, a near-death experience is not enough to deter them. And Angel does finally snap. He freaks out. His wings cut up their equipment, and he flies away before he can do any further damage. At this point, the team's going to split up for a little bit, and we're going to follow Bobby's thread first. Now, Bobby's thread starts with characters who are not Bobby at all, who are, in fact, Mole and Chicken Wings. You remember Mole and Chicken Wings, those, you know, central X-Men characters? Every time I see this written out, I read Mole as Mole. Oh, man, like a because, nice chocolatey Mexican sauce. Right, and Chicken Wings. I don't think anyone does Mole Chicken Wings, but they should. Oh, that would be really good. Right? I want that right now. Yeah, but he's not. He's Mole. But yeah, these are two of the Morlocks who uh, actually survived the mutant massacre back in the day. But they're still a little terrified because there have been rumors that Sabretooth, despite supposedly being dead, has been hunting down some of the Morlock survivors. Including a friend of theirs currently missing. All we know about this friend is that he is named Grover, and I just assume that he's the Muppet. Oh man, he was the monster at the end of the book, and now he's dead. Oh god, the monster at the end of the book, except instead of Grover, it's Sabretooth? <laughs> that would be terrifying. It's just Victor Creed, his claws just covered in blood, licking them off. Oh man. Okay, so uh, whoever writes Sesame Street and listens to our show... Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't, we're full of bad ideas. I feel bad that we even said that. Like, <laughs> I feel like I just blasphemed against something good and pure and sacred. It's possible. But uh, regardless, so yeah, Sabretooth... Uh, spoiler, yes, he is around. He's a character in this arc. And in fact, Also, he, spoiler, 
he doesn't kill any Muppets that we see on the page. He does, however, kill some Morlocks. But it is kind of important that he's back because, yes, we absolutely saw him die on panel. And one thing that has been implied bit by bit in this era and will be later confirmed is that the Marauders who perpetrated the mutant massacre and include Sabretooth among their ranks are all clones. Sinister can just basically make new ones whenever he feels like it. So if they die, you know, no big deal, at least not for Sinister. I'm assuming for the individual iterations that die, they're not too pleased. Eh, so it goes. So Sabretooth shows up right on cue. He brutally kills chicken wings and- Like, it is seriously harsh. I mean, Shoemaker does not shy away from showcasing gruesome violence here. Uh, Mole flees and Sabretooth heads off to Mall Angel and we'll catch up with those guys later. For now, we're gonna stick with Mole. Yeah, so he runs the hell away. His power is to kind of burrow through solid matter and then close it up behind him. You know, just like moles do in real life in the animal kingdom, using a miracle of nature. He's more like a Horda. He kind of is like a Horda. Yeah, from Star Trek. Yeah. No kill mole. Aw. Oh, they D- kill Does mole. he lay eggs everywhere? <laughs> I mean, maybe off panel. Moles don't lay eggs. I had to think about that for a second because I'm very tired, but I'm fairly sure that moles don't lay eggs. Listeners, we know you primarily listen to Jane Miles explain the X-Men for educational purposes, so there is your academic lesson for the day. Moles don't lay eggs, we're pretty sure. So, Mole ends up at a shop called Acme Records, which is staffed by none other than the character we've been talking about, Opal Tanaka. Um, She heads downstairs to get a new CD for her asshole boss, Carmichael, and discovers Mole in the basement hiding under the stairs. So let's talk about some character designs here, uh, both Opal and Mole. So Opal, I don't know, I, I really like the way she's drawn. She's got like this sort of side ponytail and a bandana, a camo vest, these tight culottes. And the way Shoemaker draws her, it's very clear that she's not white. And that's often a problem in comics where characters who are supposed to be other ethnicities, their features still look very, very white. It's just the coloring that, you know, determines that they're not. So fun fact, Miles thinks that Opal is super cute. And I totally he, do. And he did not realize until I pointed it out that that's because she dresses exactly like Clarissa Darling. I mean, it's not just that. I'm not denying that that's related, mind you. Clarissa Explains It All was uh, something I watched a formative time in my life. But, you know, there are other things. She's charming and smart and, you know, good-hearted and funny. She is. No, Opal is terrific. On the other hand, Mole is also actually pretty great-looking. Mole just kind of looks like a f- very furry beatnik he kind of does he's got these round glasses and this old school suit and this big beard well i mean he's just furry in general i feel like the crowd at coffee a go-go would really love him yeah but now coffee a go-go is a new wave sushi bar remember we found that out in early x factor but we still haven't found out exactly what makes a sushi bar new wave i'd imagine people have like really intense shoulders and the suit jackets they wear i don't know if that's enough but okay well it's a start is all i'm saying you gotta start somewhere but yeah, Opal's a little taken back by Mole's appearance, but still, she's a good-hearted lady and really wants to help him out. When you say taken aback, you mean outright screams. And Carmichael, the aforementioned jerk boss, comes down, assuming that she is screaming because she is in the basement doing the drugs. To which she replies, I don't do drugs. I screamed because, like, I saw a mouse. More like a rat. It was awesome how big he was. Ran over my foot. You'd probably have barfed or worse. Management really ought to do something about the gross-out working conditions down here. So I really enjoy that Opal talks a little bit like Boom Boom or Jubilee, you know, lots of likes here and there. But she's also clearly a grown-up, both in the way she carries herself and the content of her words. It seems so often, like, in X-Men in particular, but in comics in general, you can basically either be the youth or a grown-up, and there's no middle ground. Like, even Bobby Drake, who's supposed to be in his early 20s, comes off kind of like very much a grown-up. But here we have Opal, and she's a young adult, and the way Simonson writes her is totally believable. 
Once she's gotten over her initial shock, she beckons Mole out and offers him you know, her lunch, which is an onion sandwich, which I guess is a thing that you could make and pack for lunch. Well, she is a vegetarian. She points this out a number of times. I guess, you know, back in the 90s, it was vegetarians, not just vegans that did that. I don't know. But she says, Just don't go kissing anybody after you eat that thing. Whew. Not that you'd probably have anyone to kiss. Mole responds, because Mole has decided that this is his rom-com. Mole has apparently seen a few too many movies about the nevish and generally sort of well-meaning but unpleasant dude getting the super awesome hot girl as general payment for his life of being vaguely put upon and decides that this is how this is going to go for him. Spoiler, no. Now, Mole's not a bad dude, but he's definitely flirting with nice guy TM status here. Yeah, Mole gets creepy. No, he's not just flirting with Nice Guy TM status. I would say that he is entering a firm and committed relationship with Nice Guy TM status. He's not there quite yet, but he will be within about an issue. Well, and the next day, when Opal comes back to bring Mole both falafel and a Santa hat to keep his head warm, another person shows up at the record store, that being Iceman. Now, Bobby is sitting for Nathan Christopher right now, and he has decided that the thing to do while sitting for this baby... Since he's already survived, you know, numerous dangerous missions, he should do just fine going shopping. So he's got Nathan Christopher in this amazing kind of hovering spherical baby carriage. It's pretty awesome. um, Full of their parcels. And now Bobby has decided that he is going to track down the new Kate Bush CD. Now, Carmichael, the aforementioned jerk boss, is totally starstruck. Like he's got all these pictures of celebrities in his shop and he wants one of Bobby as well, so he's just, like, schmoozing the hell out of Bobby Drake. Opal, meanwhile, is doing her best to keep either of them from going downstairs, where she's got Mole hidden away, so she, you know, runs down to get the CD for Iceman. And Iceman is immediately smitten. He is struck by her beauty, and by the fact that she is sassy and splendid, and, um, you know, mentions that she looks sad, and she says, well, you know, that's because you assholes dropped this enormous skyscraper of a ship in Midtown Manhattan, And I used to get sunlight, and now I don't, and all of my plants are dying, and fuck you. So, smoothly, he says, well, hey, maybe they can put their heads together over, say, dinner. Good call. And Opal, after some brief consideration, decides, well, he actually seems pretty nice, and also she just, you know, gave her lunch to Mole, so... Hey, free meal. I feel like we should check in here because Bobby, as we know from the last couple years of comics is gay and identifies as somebody who's specifically gay, not bi, and was closeted when he was younger. So looking at it with that knowledge, I mean, here Bobby is actively flirting with Opal despite not being attracted to women, right? Well, I mean, maybe, or one of the things that he mentions, and one of the things that I think is a really common experience is the idea that if you just try hard enough, you can do it. That, you know, you meet someone and you say, well, this person is really nice and I recognize that she's objectively super cute and she seems friendly and she's someone I'd like to get to know. So maybe that's a thing. Maybe I can pursue that. Yeah. And I mean, I think Bobby does mention in Bendis's run that he did try to do exactly that for many years. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about how relationships are framed and presented, how romantic interest is framed and presented in our culture, the attributes you look for in someone to date or to pursue a relationship with or the feelings about them aren't really presented culturally as that different from the things you'd pursue in a friendship a lot of the time. It's, you know, do you see this person? Do you like this person? If you find this person interesting, then clearly you should try to date them. Yeah, and I mean, to be fair, Bobby and Opal, as they get to know each other, make an awesome pair of humans. Like, they just play off each other so well. Their senses of humor are compatible. They have similar values in many ways. And I mean, this isn't a relationship that starts off with sparks on either end. Like Opal's take on Bobby is basically, he's kind of cute. He seems like a nice dude and I'm hungry. (laughs) Right. 
And so, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it could be easy to say, oh, well, none of this matters because it'll turn out that Bobby's gay. I think it totally matters. I think it definitely showcases part of who he is and absolutely part of who Opal is. Yeah, and it's worth noting that he is going to tank this relationship really hard. Um, Multiple times. And he's specifically going to do it by trying way, 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 way too hard in ways that are going to perpetually kind of imperil her and also just be uncomfortable and weird. Going full boil, huh? (laughs) Oh, yeah, you just saw that episode. Miles is gradually catching up on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. We are very proud of him. He knows the most important thing now, which is he has met the Pontiac Bandit, which is, I feel like, a very, very critical stage in Brooklyn Nine-Nine fan development. Well, anyway, Bobby and Opal are about to leave for their date later, and Carmichael really wants to come along because, yep, total starfucker still wants his awesome picture with celebrities. You know who else really wants to come along? That being Mole, yes. Yeah, Mole is jealous, and he also decides that Iceman is probably up to no good. He rationalizes that he has to follow them. What if something happens to her? That Iceman is famous. What if he's a wolf? So here's a question. You know, we read this as him being a nice guy TM, but let's give Mole the benefit of the doubt here. What if he is being literal? What if he genuinely believes that all famous people are werewolves? I mean, you know, he's a Morlock. He's been living underground for presumably a significant portion of his life. Look, I'm just saying there are conspiracy theorists who seriously think that this world is run by lizards and skin suits. Werewolves are probably actually less of a stretch. I mean, they're mammals. And they're also totally a thing in the Marvel Universe. Yeah. What if he's right? Oh, geez. Bobby Drake? Are there other things we don't know about you? So many. But what we do know about Bobby is, unfortunately, that he's not great at picking date venues. The restaurant to which he's been planning to take Opal, a Mexican place with a terrific vegetarian menu, has unfortunately gone out of business since his last trip there. And he feels guilty, says he's been all scattered since he's been watching Nathan Christopher so much lately. Opal, however, counters that she probably only trusted him enough to go out with him because someone trusted him with a kid, so, you know. You know... Neither of those was actually a particularly wise decision. But yeah, they continue on their way. He offers her his coat since she's cold and ices up, talking about how, hey, cold doesn't bother him. I never saw you do that before. You're not like me, are you? You travel in space and live on that immense thinking ship? You spend your life fighting incredible menaces? And I drop my parcel sometimes, and I don't know restaurants have closed, and I sometimes like to go out with someone special. Man, I really like Iceman. I do. He's a great dude, yeah. And, you know, maybe this will turn out to not be what it looks like here, but screw it. They get along so well, and they're so charming together. Yeah, I feel like these two would have been super, super kick-ass friends if he weren't trying so hard to be straight. So one thing I'm really excited about is that Cena Grace, who's doing the upcoming Iceman ongoing series, mentioned that one of the things it's going to deal with is Iceman talking to his exes back from before he came out. And if Opal could come back and they could be friends again, that would make me very, very happy in my heart. Okay, but what if she's become a crime lord with an army of cyber eye in the meantime? I mean, you know, again, Marvel Universe, Tuesday. Fair. (laughs) So, yeah, they're heading off to Opal's apartment to hang out and make some dinner there. And Mole, who's been following along like the total creeper he is, isn't pleased. So he keeps grumbling and following and inadvertently, when they almost see him, burns through part of a nearby crane, dropping a bunch of girders on top of everyone. A lot of girders get dropped in the Marvel Universe. I feel like that is the default disaster that passing by superheroes save people from. It's always falling girders. Is there like an especially large amount of construction in New York? Okay, remember that scene in Wayne's World um, 
with 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 the two guys who walk back and forth carrying the pane of glass and the person whose job it is to make sure that there are always enough watermelons and so forth. Oh, yeah. And Wayne's World, too. Yeah. There's a whole career based on that kind of stuff. But girders in the Marvel <laughs> Universe. I wonder if damage control is paying these people off so they'll always have job security. I don't know. I don't know. I Oh, I wonder if maybe the girders. So, you know how like you plant mulberries around apricots to keep the birds out of the apricots because they'll go for the mulberries instead? I mean, I didn't know that, but I believe you. Well, I don't because we don't grow apricots, but maybe this is the equivalent. Maybe this is basically something that construction sites put up extra girders because if supervillains attack or something goes wrong, there will be girders to fall and, and actual construction won't be damaged. Oh, they're like decoy girders. Yeah, decoy girders. Decoy girders. Sounds like a surf rock band, maybe. A psychedelic surf rock band or just one that's stoned all the time. Oh, I was thinking kind of experimental noise core. Yeah, maybe that too. But regardless, Bobby is able to use his ice powers to protect everyone and is about to put a superhero beat down on Mole, who the only thing he knows about him is that he apparently just tried to kill them. When Opal intercedes and talks Bobby down and explains that Mole did not actually mean any harm, he was just raised by the internet or in a sewer or something. So they all reconcile and Mole heads off. He says he's going to go back to the Morlock tunnels. He's still, you know, a little nervous because Sabretooth's out there, but says he'll be fine. In reality, as he thinks to himself, he just can't bear to see Opal with another man. And he won't have to, because Sabretooth is waiting in the shadows to kill him. You chump. If there's one thing I can't stand, it's a crybaby. And yeah, Mole's made some bad decisions, but damn, that's harsh. Like, he just dies. He just gets slaughtered presumably painfully, and I don't feel good about that. Well, the way we're talking about it, it's like it's a natural consequence of him being creepy. And that's not how the book presents it at all. Sabretooth has just been hunting and stalking him because he's Sabretooth and he's horrible and Mole doesn't deserve to die any more than Chicken Wing did or presumably Grover. Yeah, so there's a lot of Sabretooth slaughtering people in this. And in fact, let's continue on with the other stories because some of them have that too. But in the meantime, Mole, rest in peace. Everybody pour one out. So it sucks to be Mole, but you know who else it sucks to be? I love X-Factor segues. Well, one of the options would be our buddy Archangel. So Angel's chapter of this arc begins with awesome cop Charlotte Jones discovering Chicken Wing's mauled corpse. Again, this is all very harsh. Like, the violence is really out there. Just the bleakness is really out there. X-Factor is not holding back in this era. And she's clearing up, you know, doing what she needs to do at the crime scene when she walks past an alley full of hoodlums who are about to set upon her. Angel, fortunately, is lurking around the rooftops, and he swoops down and rescues her, flechettes the hell out of the hoodlums, and is convinced that she's never going to want to see him again, that she must be horrified. So he swoops away sheepishly, uh, convinced that Charlotte will never want to see him again. Charlotte, on the other hand, is actually pretty odd. There he goes, shining like a Christmas angel. And suddenly there came with the angel a multitude of poison flechettes. Hey, wasn't there a Christmas angel episode of X-Men Evolution? There was. It was okay. Magneto kind of sucks, but Angel's pretty great. And it's a Cyclops and Rogue being awkward and the only kids who don't go home for Christmas. So, yeah, I like it. It's not bad. Well, you know who's also not home for Christmas, he said, segueing awkwardly. Sabretooth, who sees Archangel fly by and pulls out the assault rifle he happens to have to shoot the hell out of him, at which point Angel crashes to the ground. I know that this is not supposed to be goofy. I know that Sabretooth whipping out an assault rifle is not supposed to read a slapstick comedy. But it really does. It really, really does to me. And I don't know if there's something just really terribly wrong with me or what's going on there, but it reads as ridiculous. 
like it reads as pointedly goofy. Well, I think part of that is that the Sabretooth that we've come to know is a character whose methods of violence are very specific. Like he's a dude who gets up in your face and tears you apart, and he's legitimately intimidating and terrifying. And in this era, he's a guy in a dorky orange suit who doesn't really have that like unity of violent M.O., like, he's almost like a, he's just a troll. He just fucks with people. But no, no, trolls don't just fuck with people. We've seen what trolls do in X-Factor. Trolls plot underground to upset the British economic system by turning things into gold and destroying the value of money. Well, oh, yes, okay, the other kind of troll, you know what I mean. Sabretooth is, again, the guy who took the internet too seriously. It is strange seeing him like this, though. Like, this is a character whose voice has not been found at all yet. No prize. This is not Sabretooth. This is one of the clones who came out a little wrong. Um, yeah, I'm okay with this that. This is Paper Jam Sabretooth. And so, yeah, Sabretooth attacks Angel as he falls, and it is fucking brutal. Like, they are slicing the hell out of each other. There's blood everywhere, even if it is colored black, but still. And Sabretooth, to love of the playing field, has laced his claws with nerve poison. So they both end up bleeding heavily um, and gouged impressively and just flopped over dying in the snow. And I do really love some of the captions here, some of the narration. The snow continues to fall, shrouding the city in a seductive, deadly beauty. It is as if there are two cities, one filled with warmth and light, the other cold and bleak, where dark things prey on the weak, the helpless, and the soon-to-be-dead. Again, Claremont may have the narration game down, but Simonson, she doesn't do so bad herself. It's kind of tautological, though. If you prey on the soon-to-be-dead, are they soon-to-be-dead inherently, or are they soon-to-be-dead by virtue of the fact that they're about to be preyed upon? I don't know. I guess it depends on if you're, like, a vulture or something. Not the vulture, mind you. Now, you'd think that it might end there, or that Sabretooth might get up and scamper away or whatever, but no, there's another player who's about to join in. Because guess who was watching from a citadel below the Himalayas? It was, in fact, Apocalypse and his souped-up horseman, Caliban. Now, Caliban desperately wants to kill Sabretooth. Caliban was a Morlock during the Mutant Massacre, and wanting revenge on Sabretooth for slaughtering his people was why he went and teamed up with Apocalypse in the first place. So, Apocalypse says that Sabretooth is actually doing what's necessary, calling the weak so the strong may prosper, but Caliban is hearing none of it. Yes, Caliban is afraid of his destiny. Like a good count, he has loved his master faithfully, and now he must leave to become a ravening wolf. And so despite the fact that Apocalypse wants him to leave Sabretooth to do his murdery duty, Caliban disobeys his master, in fact briefly fights him, and uses the machinery there to teleport the hell away. And we find out that this was in fact Apocalypse's plan from the start. Now that Caliban has rebelled, Apocalypse knows he's actually strong enough. Because Apocalypse, like any good and responsible manager, values initiative. He's like a proud genocidal dad. Yeah. So Caliban finds Archangel dying in the snow. Now Sabretooth, who also got cut the hell up, is nowhere to be found. Presumably his healing factor let him escape. And Caliban's actually kind of disappointed because he was hoping to test himself against the last horseman Apocalypse created. Well, luckily for Caliban, and I guess for Archangel, Archangel is in fact still alive. He's not in great shape, and he is hallucinating that Caliban is actually Sabretooth, but they are able to get into it to at least some extent. And I really love the way that Terry Shoemaker draws this fight, because, I don't know, I'm almost reminded of the hallway fight scene from Daredevil, where Daredevil's just, like, super, super tired, and just keeps, like, staggering back into it. This is the Daredevil TV show. Like, the way he draws Archangel, I mean, Archangel is barely conscious, clearly. He's in extreme amounts of pain. And his wings are still so insanely deadly, even when he's not fully controlling them, even when he's not precise. I feel like he's kind of taking a cue from uh, Barry Windsor Smith and his take on Wolverine here. 
Oh, yeah, that uh, Wounded Wolf story, the yeah. one with Lady Deathstrike in the snow. Yeah, and uh, Katie Power. That was such a good story. And so, yeah, they fight, and it is brutal, and they end up crashing off of a rooftop uh, onto the ground below. The fight is ultimately broken up by awesome cop Charlotte Jones, who shows up and attempts to intervene and is answered with a car to the face from Caliban, who then decides to skitter off and cut his losses. When Archangel asks why Caliban's doing all of this, Caliban replies, You would protect the weak. Caliban would destroy them as he has destroyed you. And Charlotte Jones, who's, you know, trying to convince Archangel to not die, to not bleed out, to keep his organs inside himself, asks who the hell that weird monster was, and Archangel tells her, What I would be were I to follow the dictates of my wings. Now, with Bobby playing it cool with Opal and Warren wallowing in misery and also intestines, what are Scott, Gene, and Hank up to? Well, Scott, Gene, and Hank, along with intrepid reporter Trish Tilby, are on a fancy double date. They are at a super fancy restaurant. Hank had wanted to go to a funky little village joint, but lost the coin toss. I wonder if that funky little village joint is where Bernard the Poet ended up. I have no idea where Bernard the Poet ended up. I worry about that a lot, actually, especially in X Factor, because there are all of these Silver Age callbacks, especially in this story, in fact. Have you seen this man? We need to put some uh, stickers on milk cartons. Have you seen this man last spotted at Coffee Gogo spouting really bad beat poetry about someone's birthday? It was back in the 60s. We'd have to do one of those, like, aging up projections. May or may not be a mutant. <laughs> See, first-class retcons. But at the restaurant where they do end up, the patrons are all staring, and the waiter hears X-Factor talking about this and decides to pop in with some commentary of his own. Of course they're staring. You are celebrities. Graven images are still worshipped, you know. Cast not in gold, but in videotape, and beamed across the land. Someone's not getting a tip tonight. <laughs> but thankfully he doesn't have time to talk much longer because suddenly giant cockroaches attack. Like they do. Welp. Yeah, so I mean, there are seriously giant cockroaches that are just smashing everything up in the restaurant. Trish Tilby hides while, of course, filming everything. And the X-Factor members are trying to fight them off and figure out what the hell's going on. In Hank's case, punctuated by pointing out that they should have eaten in the village, which strikes me as a bad argument because didn't they get attacked by bikers the last time they tried to do that? One of the last times, yeah. Now, they fight their way through and quickly realize, wait a minute, this ain't their first giant cockroach rodeo. They've done something like this before. Oh, God. Can you imagine if giant cockroach rodeos were just, like, a thing? I can totally imagine that. It would be kind of awesome. Also gross, but also awesome. More or less scary than horse rodeos. Uh, your mileage may vary. But, yeah, they fight their way to the roof. And, in fact, there is a gentleman that we've seen before way back in 1966. One of the most memorable villains of the Silver Age, whom you will all no doubt recall with perfect clarity. As August Hopper, the Locust, you might remember that he was the main villain in all nine X-Men films. Yeah, no, I especially appreciated the part where he managed to get Gene to go Dark Phoenix and basically just invoke a huge crowd of extremely angry butterflies to uh, carry off the Golden Gate Bridge. Right. But in all seriousness, I actually really enjoy that Louise Simonson's bringing back obscure Silver Age villains because the fact is... One of the greatest strengths of X-Factor as a book is that it's about the original five X-Men, the characters with the longest history. And so bringing back some stuff from when they were teenagers, that's kind of awesome. It's fun. Speaking of keeping it retro, man, the Locust monologues like it's the Silver Age. For in Blatella Germanica, I have found my perfect subject. My Magno Ray has blessed them with enormous size. And the cockroach will soon rule the Earth and continue to rule, long after humanity blows itself to oblivion. 
I keep on reading Magno Ray as Mango Ray. That would be a very different themed supervillain. That would be a deliciously themed supervillain. But anyway, X-Factor kicks August Hopper's ass because he's an old man in a bug suit. When you put it that way, it seems almost a little mean. Regardless, the cops take him away and they take their double date to, in fact, the restaurant Hank wanted to go to in the village. So that all works out. Scott and Jean head out to buy Jean a new coat after dinner because hers was eaten by cockroaches or possibly just destroyed or lost in the battle with them. I don't think cockroaches eat coats. I think that's more of a moth thing. But regardless, they end up, um, you know, newly becoated in Central Park. And Jean is having a pretty rough time. I should note that we covered the scene at some length previously in episode 22 through Death and Through Life. What's going on with Jean? Jean is, you know, she's got a lot going on in her life anyway. But she's also got a lot of people in her head. Angel is not the only one who is dealing with invasive thoughts. And in Jean's case, that's because she's basically got two hitchhikers along with her. I'm not sure I can stand it, Scott. Sometimes my head feels like it's so crowded with all the things Phoenix and Madeline did. I don't have room for memories of my own. And she keeps on thinking she's seeing things. You know, she thinks she spots Mastermind, but she turns out it's just a woman in a purple coat. They end up, again, in Central Park. They end up sort of having a snowball fight and then sort of falling into a kiss. The narration here, I kind of love it. A song written long ago assures us that a kiss is just a kiss. But that was in a more primitive time, before mutants emerged as a force to be reckoned with. And a kiss could be so much more. Wait, like... Like what? What could the kiss be, Louise Simonson? I mean, is this is this something having to do with mutant powers? Is is it just more significant? Like, I don't understand. My only note here just says there are so many reasons not to do it in the road in all caps, which I think was retroactively a Beatles reference, but I'm not really sure where I was going with it. Regardless, they're having this like super legitimately romantic time. And it's so refreshing to see this. It's so refreshing to see Scott and Jean just be Scott and Jean. I mean, yes, the memories of Phoenix and the memories of Madeline are in Jean's head. They're not just in Jean's head. They're on the page. They're echoing behind them. Jean is seeing and experiencing them as she and Scott are talking, echoing their conversations, echoing their actions. She sees as he kisses her, there's a building that's roughly the shape of the bluff in Arizona where he and Phoenix hooked up. And she remembers them kissing there, you know, when they formed their psychic link. And finally, he proposes to her and as he says you know, marry me jean what she hears and yeah, the scene she sees is madeline marry me jean replies you loved me i've loved you so many incarnations as myself as the phoenix who stole my body as madeline whom you married who was cloned from me by mr sinister whose purpose was to produce your son all my memories all their memories are of loving you they're pushing me into your arms scott as if I don't even have a choice, as if I'm being forced to love you. And I do, Scott. I love you with all my heart. I'll love you until the day I die, but I can't. I won't marry you. Fate can go fuck itself. The Jean Grey story. I like this because Jean doesn't want to just be what she's supposed to. She doesn't want to be what her genetic and cosmic and whatever destiny is pushing her to do. She wants to be Jean Grey, a person. She wants her love, her relationship, to be one between human beings, individuals, not plot elements, basically. Well, and she wants to be confident that it's a choice, that it's her choice. Again, for more on this and for more of sort of Scott and Jean and their history, episode 22 is all about that stuff and we go into it at great length. But yeah, I love this scene and I love this relationship and I love the decision she makes here, that she decides that whether or not her instinct is to lean into this, 
she's only going to pursue it if she can do it as herself on her own terms. And for that, she has to figure out what those terms are. Yeah. And in fact, years later, that's exactly what she'll do. The next proposal that happens between the two of them will be one she initiates. So that's Scott and Jean having a remarkably constructive resolution to a kind of angsty chapter. I feel like they're in a more stable place than they've maybe been in a real long time. I would agree. I think so. So finally, they were out with another couple. What are Hank and Trish up to while Jean and Scott are in Central Park? Who knows? Maybe they are doing it back at Trish's place. We won't find out, because the next time Hank gets the spotlight, it will be the next day in issue 55, Desperately Seeking Vera. Yeah, now, in 54, some other stuff happens, but like Jay was saying before, that ties in more with the storyline we'll be covering next time in X-Factor. Spoiler, Angel hooks up with a vampire. Some decisions are made, it's true. But regardless, this issue right here, it's almost like a one-shot fill-in, and the creative team's totally different. It's written by Peter David and penciled a little bit by Terry Shoemaker, but mostly by Colleen Duran, and the cover's by Mike Mignola. Yeah, that is a hell of a team. Now, Peter David is eventually going to become the definitive writer on the second iteration of X-Factor, the second half of this series, which is the X-Factor government team. It's uh, Havoc and Polaris and company. And he'll also do the X-Factor investigations era, which goes on for years and years and years in the 2000s. Duran, incidentally, was supposed to be the artist on Fallen Angels 2. She's done a ton of other stuff. She's amazing. But yeah, this is sort of a reminder that we were supposed to someday get that story, and we never did. Ah, curses, curses. That, the Phoenix ongoing, the Longshot ongoing, so many might have been. Sigh. So in this one, it's all about Beast and Vera, his old ex from the Silver Age. Vera's great. Vera is a librarian. She is pals with Zelda, who was Bobby's flame during the same era. We've seen them briefly again in X-Factor, and Vera is super sort of bizarre and flaky and really, really into Elvis Costello, and then she just sort of disappeared. And it's been one of the stranger transitions. And this time, when Beast sees her, she has transformed as thoroughly. She is out at night, and she is apparently a prostitute. And Beast is totally taken aback. Vera, you, I... We. You began pronouns, is that it? So, you interested in a good time, or do you just get kicks dressing like a road company cowardly lion? Oh god, Vera. I feel like Beast is actually pretty into pronouns. I feel like there's an antecedent joke to be made here. He doesn't make it because he's also a tasteful individual, but man, this is very intensely Peter David-y. Yeah, everybody's witty and a little strange in Peter David books, and that will be used extremely well in the Havoc Polaris era of X-Factor. We're just getting a taste of it right here. It's also a great fit for Beast specifically. Like, Peter David Beast is a lot of fun to read. Absolutely. But she runs off when a random car attempts to run Beast down, which is kind of weird. He never really figures out what's going on with that. He finds her again after checking in with X-Factor. This time, she's wearing striped orange shorts and a big red belt and carrying a cello case. Colleen Duran has so much fun with the fashion in this issue, that's definitely a strength of hers. Now, she's a little freaked out by him, seemingly not even recognizing him from before, in addition to looking very different. He chases after her as she flees in a cab, leaving her cello behind. Wait! You forgot your cello! Come on, Vera! There's always room for cello! I love that line so much. Yeah, that is one of my favorite panels of all time. Now, the cello case explodes, but only like a little, so he ends up cartoonishly singed. Welp. So he chases down the cab, but now it's empty, and then there's Vera in a different outfit, selling hot dogs from a cart. And he confronts her, just asking her what the hell's going on. How's that grab you? 
At which point a scaly green arm pulls him inside the cart. Everyone's so literal these days. I mean, Peter David and Colleen Duran are basically just playing at this point. Like, they're just fucking around, and it's so much fun to be there as a reader for. Cue an action scene of the cart with fist and foot indentations popping out, careening through traffic, scattering pedestrians, and causing car crashes. Finally, Beast is thrown out of the cart with nothing remaining of the other monster but ashes. And he says... Don't worry, folks. Tony Stark will cover everything. Oh, no, wait. That's when I was with the Avengers. Hope your insurance is paid, folks. So he chases Vera yet again, this time into the subway, where a little girl mistakes him for the main character of that old Beauty and the Beast show, you know, the one that was set underground with, like, Ron Perlman and Linda Hamilton. I'm fairly sure that that beast was not blue. Well, you know, even so. And so he catches up to her, but suddenly, it's... Mesmero, speaking of old Silver Age villains, you know, the guy that could, like, cause illusions and brainwash people and stuff. He was the guy who uh, threw the X-Men into the circus, and then Magneto pulled the circus cart into space to capture the X-Men. And Oh, yeah, 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 back in the 70s. Yep. So, uh, Silver and Bronze Age. And suddenly, also, also, there are three monstery dudes who attack Beast. Now, they look very familiar in their design, and why will become clearer shortly. Not, however, from the Silver Age. They are more recent additions to X-Factor's rogues gallery. And so, yeah, there's a great big fight. It gets kind of ugly. Beast ends up having to throw one of them onto the third rail of the subway, at which point the big monstery guy just, like, disintegrates. Hey, guys, your pal just fried on the third rail. Doesn't that indicate to you that crime doesn't pay? He manages to take out Mesbro, at which point Vera goes back to her regular self, and Hank and Vera take a walk and catch up a bit. She mentions that she knows about him and Trish from the tabloids, and he's shocked that she reads them, and she's a little bit sheepish and aloof about it. And meanwhile, they are once again, it, God, every single storyline in this is being watched by someone. It's true. Uh, in this case, it is good ol' Infectia. Remember Infectia? She was the one that could kiss people and then have them turn into the big ugly monsters like the ones we just saw, except they would burn out really quickly when they fought too hard. And yeah. turn into dust. Turned out she hired Mesmero for the entire thing and just does a, oh well, better luck next time as she walks away. Again, I love that we're getting such a consistent and large supporting cast in X-Factor. It's kind of a shame that this era of X-Factor is almost over because it's turning into a book I really enjoy spending time in. Yeah, I gotta say, like, these stories are pretty silly, or at least the villains are pretty silly, but the stories are fun. This feels like a breath of fresh air. X-Factor is coming out of a really big storyline. And one of the things that Claremont before and Simonson now are really good at is giving them a couple issues to sort of recenter, to establish something resembling a new status quo before then throwing them into the next big storyline. The next big storyline in this case being weird vampires. But that is a topic for another episode, because in the meantime, you've got questions. Icon UK asks on our blog, In the cases of Psylocke and Cable, two characters with some of the most convoluted retcons and re-retconned backstories going, you've introduced the entire retcon when first covering the event that got retconned. So with Psylocke's turning Asian, you immediately addressed that this was actually a body swap rather than a modification of her original body. And with Cable, you addressed his actual identity long before it was part of the actual stories. Is this a conscious choice? I wonder how different the coverage might have been if you had addressed the retcons only as they arose in storylines. So, uh, yeah, this is actually definitely a conscious choice. And I should point out that those aren't the first times we've done that. We did that way, way, way back at the very beginning of the podcast when we covered Giant Size X-Men number one in the episode The Retcon That Walks Like a Man. Yeah, we did that with X-Men Deadly Genesis, which itself is a big retcon for that story. 
And so from the start, our goal has been to explain the X-Men, not just to retell their stories, although obviously that's a large part of what we do just in terms of the time we spend is just going through, in some cases, scene by scene and talking about what happens and commenting on it. You know, as such, the natural flow of the plot line often comes through pretty much untouched, and thus the reveals come through pretty much untouched. But for us, a big part of the appeal of the X-Universe is the complicated way that every freaking thing connects. How seeds planted in 1990 won't fully mature for many years, or how, say, knowing that Kitty and Rachel's romantic connection is canon helps us cast the comics of the late 80s in a new light. So that does mean that people who are only getting their X-Men stories through us, which is a slightly terrifying prospect, That does mean that they won't be surprised the same way that readers at the time were, but for us, we enjoy the rich tapestry of retcons that is X-continuity enough that we think it's worth it. Yeah, I mean, we never really set out to be a substitute for reading the comics, and we hope that we're not. Our goal here is to connect and contextualize the material there, to offer commentary, and ultimately to explain And so going through the material and just summarizing it in chronological order was really never part of the plan. And it's something that we've consciously avoided. If there's a rich mine of continuity and of commentary to be found, we will pretty much always dig in. Yeah. I mean, that said, if there are people who they're getting their first introduction to X-Men in general or just even a particular X-Men story through us, that's awesome. And hopefully, you know, the fact that there are basically spoilers doesn't mess with that too much. I'm not sure if it counts as a spoiler when we're talking about like 30 year old material. Come on. Like, I feel like that is way, way past any reasonable statute of limitations. Well, even so, although that said, with, you know, any spoilers from the last couple of years of publication, we do try to at least avoid that or uh, disclaim it heavily before we say anything. Cyclops is dead. Iceman is gay. All right. Uh, So one more. Zorn was wrong, asks on Tumblr. I have a theory that Grant Morrison's new X-Men's big plot twist would be better if it was a different villain like Apocalypse under Zorn's mask instead of Magneto. Does this theory check out? Yes. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I would agree. Like, my biggest gripe with Grant Morrison's run, honestly, is the fact that Zorn, this incredibly fascinating, likable character, turns out to just be a coked-up Magneto who then proceeds to act completely out of character and get killed. So I was thinking about this, and I was thinking of other characters you could have dropped in. And there are so many with whom this would have played so much better. One of the ones that jumped to mind and one of the ones I would have loved to have seen used this way was actually Apocalypse. That's interesting. He's not normally like a super sneaky, disguisey kind of guy. He's not, but he is a character who has, and at that point had for a long time, been desperately in need of reinvention, of a way to be, you know, made modern, to be given context and to be made interesting. Again, I think you could have done a lot of the same things. I mean, infiltration does not tend to be his approach, but I like the idea of him having the chance to evolve as a character, and I think it would have saved us from a lot of the issues. But yeah, I absolutely, absolutely agree with you. Zorn was wrong. Anyone else under the mask? Well, except for maybe like Zorn pretending to be Magneto, pretending to be Zorn, because that was just awkward. (laughs) Oh, that whole thing. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and one of the things that comes with certain tiers of patronage is acknowledgement on air by a variety of fictional characters and or concepts. So once again, it is time for everyone's favorite angry Claremontian narrator. Your life is everything you've dreamed of, Kieran Martin. But you can't help but wonder, are those dreams really yours? Or are they the dreams of Charles Arthur as he struggles to rise to the surface of your mind? and overtake you, body and soul. And with that... 
Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. And new episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show, like we said, is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week in Excalibur, the cross-time caper finally concludes. And Kitty gets the birthday gift every 15-year-old girl dreams of. More subtext. Subtext.